What are you, a Pharisee or a sinner? What are you, a Pharisee or a sinner? The, before I get there, I wanted to just tell you a story. There was this, this pastor who had a congregation full of Pharisees. Now, some of us may not know what a Pharisee was, so let me give you a little history lesson. If you go back in the times in Israel when Jesus was walking around 2,000 years ago, there were three factions of people surrounding him. There were Pharisees, and Pharisees, we would consider them today to be the equivalent of Bible thumpers. They knew the Word of God. They knew the Hebrew Scriptures. They knew the Tanakh. They knew the prophets. They knew Psalms. They knew the Word of God inside out, upside down. Those were the Pharisees. Now, oftentimes the term Pharisee to us today takes on a connotation that's negative, but it isn't. It's a neutral term. It just means they were people who were intent on following the Word of God. Then there's another group of folks called the Sadducees. And now the Sadducees, they were also Jewish people, but they had denied the validity of a lot of Scripture. They denied that there would be a resurrection and an eternal uh, existence for all people who passed. You know, even, even Jesus said to Martha and Mary, he said that, you know, even those who die, yet they will live, right? He said that to Martha and Mary at the time of uh, the death and, and the bringing back to life of their brother. So, so Jesus spoke about the bodily resurrection. He spoke about that. And they denied that. So in that sense, if we looked at them, we'd call them today our equivalent would be really liberal Christians. Eh, sort of pick and choose. I'll believe some of the Bible, but not all of it. I'll pick some of the scriptures of the Tanakh, but not all of them. And there's another group of people. They're called the Herodians. They were the followers of Herod. Herod, the, the, the ruler over the land of Israel in the day. But they really weren't even Jewish. They were semi-Jewish, a little bit Jewish. They're really Hasmoneans. They're foreigners. They were more Greek than they were Hebrew. So there are three factions of people that Jesus was confronting, right? Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And you read the scriptures, you'll see those. But today I want to focus on, the, on those people who we'd call them Bible thumpers, people who know the Word of God well. And, and it reminds me of this, this story of a pastor who had a congregation full of Pharisees. So he had people, they, boy, they were, con I got my convictions, I know this and I know that. And, and the pastor couldn't get a word in edgewise because the people were already thoroughly convinced in their own self-righteousness that I've got it all figured out. I can't learn anything from the pastor. So the pastor had, had his fill of it. He came into the pulpit one Sunday. He got up and he said, well, folks, this is going to be, this is the day the Lord's made. Let us rejoice and be glad. And you're going to have a reason to rejoice because I have decided to resign. And the people went, hallelujah, great. We've never agreed with you, pastor, you know. So the congregation is sort of joyful. And, and he said, you know, but let me explain something to you. The reason I'm resigning is that you're a bunch of Pharisees. Oh, boy, that ruffled feathers. And the people were upset at him accusing me of being a Pharisee, being self-righteous. And he said, but just to prove to you, there's no hard feelings at all, none whatsoever. When I walk out of the door here, I'm going to treat every single one of you to lunch today. 
Sunday, 1 o'clock today, I'm going to treat every one to you, of you to the restaurant of my choice. And some wisecracker in the back room says, well, that's great and wonderful, but what restaurant? He said, Chick-fil-A. No hard feelings. Chick-fil-A, Sunday. All right, so if you don't get that, Chick-fil-A is not open on Sunday. So we have today a passage that I really want to take us through that uh, is a very familiar, it's a very familiar passage out of Luke chapter 7. So turn with me to Luke 7. And I had the opportunity of sharing a version of this same message when I was in India in March. And I was in India to um, do the graduation ceremony for the first class of Mission India Bible College students that were graduating from the brand new Thomas Dooley Center that was named for my deceased son Thomas. And so I was there to do the commencement and the message you're hearing today is a derivative of the message I shared that day. And uh, so that was, a, that was a real highlight to be able to share that with them. Now, to set the stage for this passage, we're going to encounter in Luke chapter 7, we're going to encounter two different people that have very different perspectives. And I would like to amplify for us a little bit about the character of who Jesus is even leading up to this encounter. Now we know that Jesus is a man of tremendous humility and he's also a man of great patience. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, of how patient Jesus was to deliver the right word at the right time to the right audience. Now I'm not coming here today expecting, because I know this congregation and I know the love that's been demonstrated here. I don't believe that this congregation has a problem with being Pharisees. I really don't believe that. But to the extent that it might be true in us as an individual, we need to weigh it, we need to measure it. We need to weigh it, we need to measure it. So, um, so who, who is Jesus? Well, obviously Jesus comes from very humble origins. You think about his mother, she was probably 14, 15 years old. She's a a, a young teen gets pregnant miraculously, and in their little hometown up in this God-forsaken land up north, in Galilee, in the land of Nazareth, Nazareth and Galilee up north, it's a land that nothing good could come from. They were despised and downcast like Mississippians. So they were looked down on and despised. And yet, out of that, God did an amazing thing. He confounds the wisdom of the wise by doing foolish things. He takes this young little teenage girl, gets her pregnant. Woo, that's a, that's a big taboo back in their day. What about a teen bride who has yet to be consummated in marriage with her, with her husband? So that wasn't very good. That wasn't a good start. And then along comes through this angelic encounter with Mary and her husband Joseph. Even Joseph's told, hey, shut up, let it happen. Well, now he's brought into the scandal because he has to publicly bear witness to the fact that I'm going to marry this pregnant young teen girl. And, and the scandal of town now involves him too because he wanted to just set her aside and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that, you know, just kind of set her aside quietly and walk away as if they weren't engaged. And God said to him, you know, not only are you going to do that, but you're going to have to name this son something other than your name. 
See, most Jewish dads would want to name their firstborn. His, his name should have been Bar-Joseph, the son of Joseph, but he was born with a divine name. And the name means salvation because God had imputed into him that name. And God had told both parents early, this child shall be salvation to the earth, salvation to all of us. And so the parents were, were raised in that kind of a context of, I'm sure the, the, the town folk thought, well, they're a bunch of sinners. They've been sleeping around. I mean, well, that's what I would have thought. I would have went, oh, come on, 14-year-old girl gets pregnant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. You guys were holy and pure. Right. Sure. Yeah. That's a pretty, pretty tough pill to swallow. So Jesus, though, listen to this. Jesus spent three decades preparing for three years of ministry. He then spent three years of ministry preparing for three days at the end of his life. Now weigh that in your spirit. He spent three decades to prepare for three years, to prepare for three days. So as Jesus, Jesus sees the long arc of history ahead of him. And he says, God, it's okay. I'm going to be a carpenter for 30 years. I'm going to hang out with my papa. I'm going to work with hammers and chisels and saws. And I'm going to cut stones and I'm going to cut boards and I'm going to build houses and whatever is required of me for 30 years. Look, if I was God, I would never do something that foolish. I'd show up with lightning bolts and thunder and say, who? God's arrived. Boom. Right? God's here. But he spent 30 years in humility having the shame of everybody in town saying, you know who that kid was. Uh-huh. He's the illegitimate son of that 14, 15-year-old Merrick. That's who he is. He's a nobody. You see, Jesus should have been in that context a downcast, despised young man, but he was patient for those 30 years until he had an opportunity to then set out in ministry. And once he sets out in ministry, what happens? The Pharisees rise up and go, excuse me, sir, did you go to seminary? Excuse me, sir, which seminary did you attend? And what did he have to say? Uh, The seminary of carpentry for 30 years. What do you know about the Word of God? You know nothing. You know nothing. You didn't go to our, our rabbinical school to be trained. And not only that, can I ask you a question? What genealogy do you have that allows you to presume that you can be a teacher of the Word of God? Because you know that under our system, there's only one tribe that has the privilege of teaching the Word of God. And who do you think you are, carpenter boy from the land of Mississippi? And you think you can come in here and explain it to us? You think you can explain to us Pharisees what the Scriptures mean? We devoted our heritage for... 1,500 years to teaching this. Who are you to come in here? You see, Jesus had every reason to not be a teacher of the Scripture. Not by training, not by pedigree. You see, God loves to take the downcast, the despised, the rejected, and He loves to elevate it. He wants to do that in all of our lives. He wants to take that thing that doesn't make sense, it's illogical, others may not get it, and he say, you know, you might have worked in a factory, you might have worked in a coal mine, but you can be one of the greatest preachers that the earth has ever seen. 
You could be one of the greatest mothers the world has ever seen, and you could produce a disciple who influences the world as a mother. You see, God has a way of taking humble people that are available and elevating them. So, do we get the context? Pharisees, they know the Word of God. They know it well. Now, in my lifetime, I would say it's seasons in my life. I've had, I've had issues with, even in my own head, thinking I'm a bit of a Pharisee. Because, you know, somebody will like, you know, you get in an argument, and it might be over some doctrine or, you know, what do you think about this? And somebody raises the question, you go, well, I've studied Scripture, and I read the Bible many times, and I, you know, by golly, I can answer that question. How many of us have been there? I mean, you just, now there's a difference between having a conviction of truth and being arrogant and self-determined. Like, well, I can solve that. I've never met a fight. I haven't won. You know, like, put your dukes up scripturally. You know, you, you think you got that figured out? I can trump you. You think it's all about grace? Well, I'm going to take you to the book of James. I'm going to stick it in your face. You think it's all about works? Then I'm going to take you to passages on grace. You know, you get, you're like fixing for a fight, right? That kind of mindset happens. And the more knowledge you have of the scripture, the further you can get away from God's intent. There are some of us who know the word of God so well. And there's, a, there's an old saying, and I, don't, I, I can't quite quote it, but it's like, as straight as a rifle barrel. As straight as a rifle barrel, meaning you can shoot straight, but it can also be just as hollow. You can know the Word of God and you can, you can know passage and verse and where to take people in it. And, and I commend everyone for doing that. It's a responsibility. Those of us who are Jesus followers, it is our responsibility to accurately handle the Word of God. And I'm not putting it down today. I'm saying continue to do it, but don't lose the heart. Don't focus merely on the head. Focus on the heart behind that. And if you can't deliver a message that is a marriage as a preacher, as a teacher, as an evangelist, if you can't marry heart and head, then shut up. I'm telling you, we have too many people who are speaking merely from their head. They're speaking about theory, and I know this passage, and I know the Greek, and I know the Hebrew, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. If you can't marry your heart to your head, you're disqualified. Jesus said... Not Jesus, but the Apostle Paul wrote it in 1 Corinthians about you just become a clanging symbol. You're just making a bunch of noise. Don't be, don't be a prophet or a preacher or somebody that's just making a bunch of noise. It has to be married with the heart of love. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. So let's take a look at this passage with that said. <clears throat> and, and like I said, I'm treating everybody to lunch today at Chick-fil-A. All right, so let's go. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 33. Now, I'm going to transition with a couple verses real quick. And I want to, these are Jesus' words that deal with how the Pharisees behave. So here we go. So for John the baptizer, he came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he's referring essentially to the Pharisees. He says, that John the Baptist, he's demon-possessed. He says, now the Son of Man, and this is an important statement, some of us don't know what the term Son of Man means. Son of Man means a prophet. It literally means to be a prophet. You can go back in the Old Testament 
And you can find that the term son of man doesn't mean son of God. It means a prophet. It's the phrase for a prophet in their common vernacular of the day. You go back and look at the Old Testament prophets and you'll see this phrase. So it says, the prophet Jesus. He came eating and drinking and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proven right by all of her children. Now, immediately prior to this passage, he uses a little um, sarcastic comment against them. And he says, it's kind of like we had some minstrels set up here and they, they performed one song for you that was supposed to make you happy, clappy, and joyous, and you weren't. And then we played a death dirge that was supposed to be a funeral music and you didn't weep and cry. Meaning, it doesn't matter what the music is, you don't respond from your heart. Got me? That's what he's saying. You're still responding as a Pharisee. We're giving you sweet music that doesn't emote you to laughter and joy. And we give you sad music and it doesn't emote you to mourning and tears. So he's, he's already poked a finger in the eye of the Pharisees and he said, you guys don't get it. You've disconnected your heart from your, from your head. Now, so what's he saying here in these two verses? He says, when John the baptizer came, he didn't eat bread. Now, that's not that he didn't eat food. He's saying he had a strange diet, and you didn't understand his diet. What did John the baptizer eat? Locusts and wild honey. Perhaps he ate bread. I don't know. Maybe he, would, maybe he ate other things. But he ate two strange foods. And if you've hung around me long enough, you've probably heard me teach on the food of John the baptizer. The two foods that he ate were locusts. What's a locust do? It's a grasshopper. It destroys living things. It eats the green plants. It eats their flowers. It eats everything. It strips them bare. It stuffs, it just, it snuffs life out of anything. That's what a grasshopper is. It's about destruction and death. And what about wild honey? What does that speak of? It speaks of the exact opposite. It's about life. Green plants, flowers, nectar. We have bees at our house, and this year my wife harvested our first, I don't know, about eight quarts of honey. We have brand new honey that we just got on our farm this year, and I'm, I love honey. So it's, it's a symbol of, of what John the Baptist consumed into his mouth. And what enters a prophet leaves a prophet. So what went into John the Baptist were sweet things and bitter things. And what came out of John the Baptizer were sweet things and bitter things. See, a true prophet will bring you blessings and curses. He won't just stand there and demand that everything be a blessing. He will speak the truth to you in love at all times. If you watch today on TV somebody who claims to be a prophet, apply that filter to what they're saying. And look at it and go, is he a true prophet or not? Because a true prophet will always deliver the truth in love, and they will give you blessings and curses, good things and bad things. They will speak the truth in love at all times. But what we have on TV today are self-declared prophets who just want to do bless me, bless me, happy, happy. Uh, and you know what it is? It's Christian fortune telling. I just want to feel good. The ultimate hallmark of a false prophet throughout Scripture the ultimate hallmark is somebody who tickles your ears with sweet words. That is what a false prophet is defined as throughout the Bible. Somebody who only tells you sweet things, sweet, pleasant things. And we live in a season right now that's an unusual season. This is the COVID season. Now, the world's been in the COVID season for about 10 months. 
The United States been in it about six months, and this is the most bizarre season of almost every one of our lives. Show of hands, how many of you think this is the weirdest thing you've ever lived through? Now, how many of you are sick of COVID? I'm sick of it. Now, not that I literally have it. I didn't say I'm sick with COVID. I'm sick of COVID. I'm tired of it. I'm really, really tired of it. And I digress briefly. I came back from India. This is very interesting. My last full day in India, while I was struggling to get flights out of India, and I almost didn't get out at the end of that trip because the COVID crisis was locking down airports and international travel. I left India on the 20th of March. The last day to leave was March 21st. And my good friend Saji Lukos just left yesterday. Just left India yesterday. I would have been locked down in India for the last five months if I'd stayed there. Now, but what did happen is amazing. My last day there, I was at, with my friend, Dr. Sadiq, who runs a hospital called the Philadelphia Christian Hospital North. It's in uh, Ambala, and it's north of Delhi. And I spent a day with him. He's a very busy man. How many of you know that the directors of hospitals, they have to-do lists every day of 50 jobs they got to do that day. They're, they're hiring people. They're firing people. They're looking at budgets. They're dealing with complaints from doctors. They've got lawsuits. They've got attorneys calling them up saying, my patient died. And I mean, a hospital administrator, that's a tough job. And this man devoted a day of his time to me while I was there, a whole day. I got to do their morning vigil for their staff, and I got to do their message that morning. Spent a day with him, had meals with him, had a wonderful time. We started talking about COVID while I was there. At that moment in time, Tom Dooley wasn't working as a research scientist on COVID. I wasn't. But I came home, and about a week later, I got a phone call. And I got a phone call from Mississippi saying, Tom, we know, you're, we know that you have capabilities with regard to taking old medicines and repurposing them for new things. We have an idea that we've just started to work on. And we think that this thing might treat COVID. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to have a treatment that's affordable and available anywhere in the world that would treat patients in the hospital who have COVID. And what we've done is we've taken two well-known medicines. One is called Pepsid, famotidine, and the other one is Zyrtec, cetirizine. We've taken two very common medicines. You can get at Walgreens, CVS Pharma, you can get them anywhere. And we've started to treat some patients in a hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, and we'd like for you to join our team to help us with the science about moving this program forward. And I said, that's a great idea. I said, I think it'll work. And I had reasons, scientific reasons to believe that it would work. Well, one week ago, last weekend, we just published a paper that came out in Pulmonary Pharmacology and Therapeutics that shows that this treatment reduces inpatient fatalities of severe and critical patients by a third, and it reduces their rate of uh, need for intubation for a ventilator by a third. For a medicine that every single person in the world should have access to that costs only dollars, while all the other medications that are out there right now are thousands of dollars or you need prescriptions or you've got to be in the hospital to get them. So what happened was I called up that doctor in India, Dr. Sadiq, early on in the journey once we were getting evidence that this was working. And I said, be prepared, be prepared. 
start you know, planning for when COVID patients arrive. And he has reported back to me great success as well. So I say this to you to say, I'm sick of COVID, but God has a way of taking us and steering us. I wasn't planning on working on COVID, and yet I'm grateful that God saw fit. Think about this for such a time as this. Now, why did I get that phone call? I'm going to digress for a second. I got the phone call because the folks in Mississippi knew about my son Thomas. They knew about his life. They knew about his death. And they knew that I'd invented a medicine to treat anxiety that was repurposing old drugs into new purposes and new indications. So because of my prior track record in in redeeming old medicines for something new, they said, we need you on our team. And I wrote that publication that came out last week. So so I say that to just digress. But um, So I had this chance during this COVID season to be engaged in that. And if anybody wants to find that paper, you can go to my website, tomdooley.org. Now let's continue in our, our message. So back to Luke 7, starting in verse 36. And this is the main, the main section that I want to talk to you about today. It says, Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to this Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So their custom in this day would be they didn't have tables and chairs. They were seated, laying kind of on their side, on their hip, on the ground. So you would always have somebody sitting kind of next to you, and their stinky, sweaty, dusty feet would be next to you. And it was in their culture and their custom that when you entered the home, you had to wash feet off because the feet were walking on roads that had what? They had sheep manure and, and you know, dust and dirt and who knows what. I mean, their, their streets were not clean and feet were gross. They were disgusting. So this traditional view of washing feet, we know the story of Jesus and, and right before his crucifixion, he washed his own disciples' feet. Well, it's a very pragmatic thing to do. It wasn't just a religious gesture. It was functional. So it, it, was, it was meant to be that way. So Jesus comes in and he reclines at this man's table to eat dinner with him. Now, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she bought, brought an alabaster jar of perfume. I'm going to stop there. So the lady is described as a sinner. And we remember in the prior passage that that Jesus himself was accused of being the friend of gluttons. Those who eat too much, they don't ever fast. They're fat and, you know, whatever. So that's number one. He says he was the friend of sinners. Well, that's a derogatory term for somebody who does not obey the word of God. So if you're a Pharisee, it's pretty easy to find who the sinners are. They're not doing what you're doing. A sinner is anybody other than you, the Pharisee, because darn it, you're right. You got it all figured out. They don't believe my doctrine, that's a sinner. They don't believe my view of the scriptures, they're a sinner. We get this a lot in America because we have 2,000 denominations, and if you don't like one of those, make your own and make it number 2,001. Because we're constantly dividing the body of Christ over these stupid things that frankly we should just say, I have a minor difference with you on that, okay, thank you. Praise God, go do your thing and I'll do my thing. 
But no, we want to bring down the wrath of God on them because they don't agree with us. So Jesus, being the friend of sinners, was he's hanging out with people who the Pharisees despised. Their enemies, the people who didn't live the way they lived. And so in this context, she's one of them. So she obviously didn't honor the word of God in the eyes of the local town folk. She led a sinful life. Now, exactly what she had done in her sinful life doesn't matter that much because there are thousands of variations on the theme of what those sins could be. Each of us has a laundry list of them. And I can tell you that even though I preach the Word of God, I do it only by God's grace because I did a lot of things in my life that have disqualified me from being a preacher of God's Word. This is holy. Tom Dooley isn't. Right? And so... In this context, she comes forward and she brings a real special gift with her to this dinner. And it's interesting to note, this is the despised woman walking into the house of the Pharisee man. And what's he going to think the moment she walks over the threshold into the house? He's going to say, no, 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 no. I got a special dinner guest. You're not welcome. You're not one of us. You're despised, stay out of my house, you're barging in, you're, in, you know, you're a wedding party crasher, right? You're breaking in on my deal. I'm trying to hang out with Jesus. And she brought a special gift. Now it says here in English it was an alabaster jar of perfume. I believe that's a mistranslation from the Greek. In the Greek the term is called alabastra, not alabaster. And the Greek term means a glass test tube. And the way perfume was stored in their days, they would fill glass test tubes, cork the top of it, seal it, maybe seal it with wax as well. And the way that you would use it was you would break the glass and pour all of it out. This wasn't a little mister of Chanel, right? And it wasn't a jar of salve, although it's translated, I believe, incorrectly in English as a jar. It's not. It's an alabastra. And I've seen those. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, you can see them. They're there, little glass vials. They look like little Roman glass test tubes. So she takes this thing, and once you open it and break it, it all has to be disposed of. You snap it. It isn't like get a drop on. It's break it and snap it. So she stood behind him at his feet weeping. And I had this image as we were singing your last song, you know, come to the altar. I thought, there's no more beautiful altar than to be at the feet of Jesus. That's the best altar there is. She came to the altar of his feet. And it's interesting that his feet were still stained with manure and mud and dust and dirt. He even says it in this scripture. His feet weren't clean. They were dirty in this setting. And yet this woman lavished upon him her worship. So... She stood behind him at his feet weeping, and she began to wet his feet with her tears. She didn't have a bowl of water to wash him. She used her own tears to take the sheep manure and dust off of his feet. Now, what she was doing, his feet had to stink at this moment. I mean, think about it. We, don't do, we have shoes and socks here in the States, but when I'm in India, people walk around in sandals, and they walk on dusty, dirty paths. They do it in Africa, too. And the people have dirty feet. So who would want to go be that close and that intimate to dirty feet? 
She then used her own hair because she didn't have a cloth to wipe it. So she's taken the manure off of him and putting it on her. She said, I'm, I'm removing your... And then she opened that, that, snapped that file open and poured out that expensive perfume on his feet. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, Shimon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, Shimon said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii. I collect Roman coins. If you ever want to see what a Roman denarius is, I've got them in my, Rome collect, in my coin collection. And I can show you. It's a silver coin about the size of a dime. It was worth one day's wages. It, it was one day's wages back then. If you go buy one in an antiquities market today, it'll cost you about a day's wages to buy one today. So it's still worth a day's wages today. So, so he owed 500 denarii, but the other man only owed 50. Now think about that. 50 days wages, that's about two months worth of income, and 500 is about a year and a half's worth of income. Now neither of these men had the money to pay him back. So he graciously canceled the debts of both of them. Now Shimon, Simon, which one of them loved the money lender the most? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then Jesus turned toward the woman. Now, before I continue, I just want to tell you that these passages have come alive in my spirit since my son Thomas was a drug addict. My son suffered for 12 years with psychiatric problems of anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, medicines, all these things. And in order to get relief, my son sought out opiate medicines because they relieved him of the squirrel cage of thoughts that were going on in his head every day. And he got relief when he was taking heroin or fentanyl. It gave him relief. Now, as a dad, I'm a disciplinarian. You know, all of us have a hard wiring as a parent. How many of us know that as a parent you have a primary wiring? You're either mercy-oriented or you're a discipline-oriented parent. Any parents in the house? Do you understand what I mean? You have a primary way that you act when you encounter an issue in your household. I'm the disciplinarian. I'm the Pharisee. Get it right. Do the right thing. You know what's right to do. Don't be a drug addict. Now some... And it's not always true, but often the mother is the mercy one and often the dad is the disciplined one, but not entirely true. Some families, there's an inversion of that. And so I had many, many years where I had to deal with these things. And not many of you knew what we were going through. I went to a psychiatrist visit with my son one time when he was a teenager. And I was already upset at the fact that I couldn't be in the room to hear what they were talking about. 
It's like, this is my teenage son. I want to know what, what is transpiring in there in this counseling session with the psychiatrist. Because I know my son's a very proficient liar, and he's bound to be in there telling him, oh, this bad, that's bad, gripe this, gripe that. And none of it's the truth. How many of you know that you, the way you spot a, uh, you know, you spot a drug addict who's lying is their lips are moving, you know? And, and so my son's in there telling stuff to the psychiatrist, and I'm not happy about it because I'm like, I want, my, I want to solve this problem, you know? I want my son to be made whole, and I want to get out of this. And My son came out, and the psychiatrist looked at me, and he said, um, well, now it's time for me to speak to your parents. So Thomas sat down. He's a teenager at the time. And the psychiatrist looked right at me, and he said, now, sir, we're going to deal with your problem. And I wanted to slug him. I thought, I'm spending $200 out of my own wallet for you to spend a half an hour to lecture me? He's a believer. The psychiatrist was a believer. And so he, he said, I just want you to know your son's situation is so serious. He says, I just urge you to embrace mercy. And I wanted to give him 10 explanations. You don't know the hell I've been through and back with this kid. You don't know it. And he just said, it doesn't matter what your side of the story is. I'm urging you, show mercy to your son and be grateful that he's breathing. So I say that because the context of how do we, how do we approach somebody who's an overt sinner, somebody who's got just in-your-face sin and life challenges and difficulties, we always have to marry the head with the heart. We can't separate them. And that man, in his rebuke of me that day, I didn't appreciate it, but he was telling me the truth. He said, be grateful for any day you have with your son. If you read between the lines, what he was saying is your son is not, not going to live long. He said, I've, you know, I'm an experienced psychiatrist. I've been through this. I've seen it. These kids, they overdose and they die and they, they commit suicide. And it's real common for parents to later regret not showing some mercy to them. So the Lord has done a work in me. And that's when I, when I read this passage. I see this woman on the ground as my son. Coming to the foot of Jesus. This week I had a dream. You know, the Lord speaks to me through dreams. How many of you know that? The Lord speaks to me a lot through dreams. This week I got to see my son Thomas again. And I saw him on a street, on a sidewalk, on a street. And as I saw him, I just came running up to him and I said, You're alive, you're alive. And I, I got down on my knees on the sidewalk and I hugged him. And I hugged him. It was like he was my 20-year-old boy again. Hugging him. And I said, oh, it's great. You're alive. You can come home with us. You can come home with us. He said, no, Dad. I belong here. So it was the highest high and the lowest low in the same dream. I got to hug him. But he couldn't return with me. When I see this woman, I think of all the women at the Love Lady Center that I have the privilege of, of teaching. This week was a wonderful week for me. For five months, I've not been permitted into the building 
because of COVID. I'm sick of COVID. And so are the ladies at the Love Lady Center. And this week I got to return and I got to teach about 40 of them this week. And it was great to be back as one of their guest pastors and teachers in the house again. It was, it was a delight to be there. And when I'm with them, I think God has been teaching. Part of the reason I chose this passage today was to share my heart with you. Not my head. You know, I got lots of head knowledge, but this is a, this is a heart message today. This is a scripture I teach the ladies. I love to teach them this passage. And we're going to get to the end because there's a lot of redemptive value at the end of the passage. <clears throat> Some of you may know the day that my son died, the Lord directed me before I knew he was dead. He was already dead, and I didn't know it. He'd already passed. And I was on the main floor of our house, and the floor below us in the basement, my son had already died. So he was directly below me through the floor. And I received a very strong prophetic message from a dear friend of mine, Brian, Brian Francis Hume in Virginia wrote me, or Maryland, and he wrote, he said, Tom, he said, I know you've told me many times about in the, <clears throat> in the seventh year of each decade, God seems to graduate you to something new. And then that defines that next decade. And he said, do you realize that this is now the seventh year of the decade, 2017, it's the head of the year, it's the start of the year. He said, has the Lord revealed to you what this next decade will look like? And I stopped everything I was doing. Now, I had a, I'm a busy guy, you know, I had a lot of things on my to-do list. And I stopped and I diverted. And I typed out a message, a very detailed message, and I sent it to my, many of my close friends. And I said, yeah, the Lord is saying something to me. Now what he's saying to me is that I have formerly been, I've been known as a certain kind of a leader, kind of a general patent getter done kind of leader. You know, man it up, make it happen. You know, just brute force, get her done kind of leader. And I, and I wrote that morning, but I know the Lord is saying very clearly to me that I will henceforth be known as a leader in weakness. No longer a leader in strength. A leader in weakness. See, Jesus, he was strong, but he was also, he led through weakness. He didn't elevate himself. He didn't have the thunderbolts going off. Didn't have the lightning behind him. He's just hanging out with manure on his feet, sweat, walking around from village to village, preaching the gospel, and all the Pharisees are saying, you're not even qualified to teach this. You think you're a great teacher? You think you're a great prophet? You're disqualified. You don't have any right to be a preacher. You have no right to be an itinerant speaker here. Jesus, you're disqualified. And that's what all these Pharisees thought. Who does he, who does he think he is? He's not a Levite. In from the tribe of Levi, he doesn't have any right to say these things to us. Yet he's pretending to be, pretending to be a rabbi, Rabboni. Only Levites could do that. Only Levites could do that. So they had very good legal authority to renounce him and say, mm, you're disqualified. You don't have the right genealogy. But I guess 
part of my heart in sharing with you today is that this passage is just as alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is still concerned about the heart of the sinner and the heart of the Pharisee. Now, verse 44. Then Jesus turned to that woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman I came into your house? You did not give me any water for my feet. My feet are still muddy. They still have manure on them. You didn't even do what was customary. And what does that tell me? He didn't treat him with the respect and the honor that was due Jesus. He was a guest in his house, and he didn't even wash the man's feet off. He was curious. He was a tire kicker. And some of us in our faith journey were tire kickers. Well, I kind of play around a little bit with this Jesus thing. You know, test the waters a little bit. But Jesus is all about all in, full surrender. All of you. Man up. Give it all. And this guy, that phrase tells you that this man didn't honor Jesus. He brought him for dinner, but he's kind of like just checking him out. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. And I want to tell you something really interesting. If you go back to the book of Psalms, King David said that our tears are stored up in vials of memory. Our tears are stored up. It's as if our tears are stored in heaven. Our prayers go to heaven. Our tears go to heaven. This woman's tears made it to heaven that day. What was coming out of her heart expressed through her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair. You did not give me a single kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You see, Jesus was humble. He could have been disgraced at that moment too, thinking, I'm the guest of honor at this dinner. You know, I don't need this woman. I don't know whether she was a prostitute or she was a, you know, an alcoholic. I don't know. I don't know what she was. She's just a sinner. And she brought all of her being there. Full sinner, full woman, everything. From the time I entered, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet, and therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she has loved much, but he who has forgiven little loves little. I've, I've had many people talk to me about the loss of a, loss of a child, loss of an adult child, and and I, I, can't, I can't really imagine a pain worse than it. Maybe losing multiple children like that would be worse, but I can't think of a single death that would be comparable. I've lost parents, grandparents. I lost a brother. I've, you know, had a lot of death and issues in, throughout life. And I've told them that it's, it's really, really difficult and the amount that you cry is commensurate with the amount that you love them. The amount that you loved into them is the amount to which you mourn and grieve and cry after, fact, after the fact. And this woman, boy, has she ever got it right. 
she went, man, have I been a sinner. Woo! I was the head of the parties. I mean, I was, I was the lady who was, everybody, everybody's eyes were on me, right? Life of the party. But she went from that to an awareness, a holiness awareness in the presence of Jesus that said, that's all nothing. That's my past. It's horrible. It's despised. It's shameful. And she shifted. And then Jesus Look to the woman directly. He's no longer speaking to the Pharisee, but he looks at her and he says, three things to her. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Now there's only two circumstances I'm aware of where somebody can grant forgiveness to somebody else. If you're an offended party... Something has happened to you. You have the privilege, the option of forgiving. Right? If it's happened directly to you, then you can forgive. Now, in this context, one would say, well, Jesus doesn't have a right to forgive anything. Forgiveness, the atonement, the practice of atonement to a Jew, only came at the hands of a priest, and it only happened through religious ceremonies, and even then it was sort of a semi-forgiveness. It wasn't, you know, it was sort of a, Let's kind of conceal the sin rather than absolving it and removing it and blotting it out and removing it. It was let's just put a blanket over it as if it didn't happen. That's sort of what Jewish atonement was about and even in the sacrifice of animals and the shedding of blood and all that, that there is a measure of forgiveness. So for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, under what authority was he saying it? Was he a high priest? Was he a, the highest of the high? Was he the head of the Levitical priesthood and he had the right and the authority to say that? Well, you and I know today he did have that authority. It says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth rests in me. I got it all. It's all mine. So he could even, we would saw that, co-opt that into his circumstance there and say, as a representative of the Levitical priesthood, even though I wasn't born into it. I'm the high priest today, and I'm going to forgive you. But he's also saying personally, your sins are forgiven because he saw her heart, and he saw that she was willing to own the fact that she was a sinner. That she would do it to her own shame and her own disgrace. She would walk in publicly and do this. He said, your faith has saved you. Now, it's interesting, what does faith mean? Reinhard Bonnke is one of my favorite authors. He, he writes very simple things. Reinhardt has a saying, or he had before he passed. He said, faith only works in darkness. It never works in the light of day. Faith requires darkness. You're obligated to darkness for faith to work. You see, if I tell you that I have $50 in my wallet, and I can pull out my wallet and I can find whatever Mr. Green is. And as a matter of fact, I've got a $50 bill right there, okay? And it's there. There's a $50 bill in my, in my wallet to buy groceries or whatever. Does it take any faith for me to do that? None. That's all by sight. That's by knowledge and sight. And I've got, I got 50 bucks. I have it. However, if my wallet is entirely empty, and it's sitting right in front of you. And I say, but I know 
the Jesus that I serve, he's true and faithful, and he loves me, he's for me, he's not against me. And I know that whatever need I have, he'll meet it. And I'll say, I may not be able to see that $50 bill in my wallet, but I have sight money that is right here. I have faith money that's right here. You see, faith money appropriates. It sees into the unseen and says, I can't see it, but it's going to come through. This woman knew that she knew that she knew she would receive what she wanted by going to see Jesus that day. She had faith, and Jesus commanded her and said, your faith. The term for that is P-I-S-T-I-S in Greek, pistis, and it really means risk-taking belief in action. Faith requires action. Hope doesn't. Hope does not require action. Hope is a belief. Hope is just, I expect a positive outcome. Faith is hope with feet, right? So if you have hope in something and then you walk towards it, that's faith. And this woman took action to appropriate from Jesus what she needed, and she received it. It says, your faith has saved you. So that day she met the author of salvation. She was saved by the Savior because she humbled herself and says, I don't care what these Pharisees say. I, she may not even have known a one verse of the Bible. She may have been a really good heathen. We don't know. But when she came forward, she got that. And finally, he says to her, now go in peace. Do you think that woman had ever experienced a moment of peace in her recent years of life? I don't think so. She would have been despised by the Pharisees who were mocking her and denigrating her and holding her down. But that day, Jesus not only gave her peace, he said, now go walk it out. Go walk out a life of peace and go. So I share this message from my heart today more from, than from my head. And I just wanted you to know a little bit of what, what I've been doing, what I've been experiencing. And I have the opportunity every time I'm with the love ladies to see scripture not just as okay, this is a Bible teaching and I'm commissioned here to be the preacher, the teacher today. But it's a way that the scriptures come alive and it's a marriage of heart and head. And I just say, thank you, God. You had to humble me. You had to take me low to elevate me. You had to take me through some really hard stuff to get me to a place where this message is meaningful. Now, I could have walked in here today and I could have just told you the story. And you would have walked away and said, that didn't do anything to me. It didn't stir me. It didn't touch me. And my prayer for us in this day, because we're living in strange times. We live in really, really odd times. That each of us be an effective ambassador of Jesus in all that we're called to. Let's abandon the notion of being a Pharisee. Let's abandon the idea of, oh, I've got all the solutions. I'm going to correct you. I'm going to straighten you up. Look, Birmingham has lots of, we got lots of people with opioid addiction. We've got a lot of people that are filled with fear and anxiety right now, and COVID is driving it through this roof. People are depressed. Many people are out of work. They've been underemployed. And if ever there was a time for us as a community to marry heart and head and reach out, this is it. This is it. You know, you want a good opportunity to see people enter the kingdom of God, this is it. So... With that, I don't know what my time is. I probably ran a long time. But thank you very much. I appreciate your chance to have me out today. 
And uh, thank you, Caleb, and your family. Love you guys. Love you very much. Why don't we rise to our feet, and I'll just close this with prayer. Did you have one more song or not? We're done? We're good? All right. And I appreciate you guys listening intently. Um, may not have been your standard raw, raw rally message, but I think, I think it was what the Lord had in mind today. So, Father, I want to thank you for Brookside Church of God, and I thank you, Lord. I really thank you for the women and the men and the children of this community and those who are here. I also thank you, Lord, for my friend, the LaPonts, who came here today. I thank you for prompting them to be here. It's a joy to see them again. Lord, I pray that your blessing that you spoke at the end of this passage would be on everyone today. Everyone in the room would know your sins are forgiven. Everyone would know that your faith has saved you. And everyone would be able to leave here walking in peace, knowing that you're a God who has them in, in mind. Mindful of Isaiah 49 where it says, Behold, I have written you on the palm of my hand. Lord, etched in the wrinkles and the folds of the palm of your hand is each person's name and image. When we look at our own hands, we can see lines in the palm of our hand. Lord, would you remind each of us this week that you're a God who's for us and not against us. And when we have the tendency to be a, a Pharisee who thinks we know everything, Lord, humble us and bring us to a place of showing mercy and love in that setting. Lord, I pray that Brookside would be a church that is welcoming to people who know they're sinners. And they wouldn't come here to remain sinners, but they'd come here to have their lives transformed. We ask this in Jesus' name.